Welcome to Every Moment His, a podcast dedicated to contemplating how God's preached Word impacts every moment of our lives. This sermon was preached at Holy Cross in Kearney, Nebraska by Pastor Tim Barone. If someone asked you, you know, what is the point of the book of Malachi in the Old Testament? Uh, A really good answer might be the book of Malachi is about a demoralized people. It's about a demoralized people that God comes and speaks to. And so that's really what we have here is this conversation between people who have a demoralized heart and God who calls them back to himself. But to be demoralized is kind of a unique circumstance, right? It's, it's not exactly depressed, um, and it's, it's not exactly disillusioned or something like that. But to be demoralized, I think a good um, definition of being demoralized is you're no longer willing to fight for what is good because you no longer believe in what you're fighting for. That's demoralized. You're just not willing. You're kind of throwing up your hands. What's the point? And that's the state of the people uh, of God when this prophecy comes around. You might remember last week we talked through the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah had been told by God to buy a field uh, even when Jerusalem was in siege, it was war, to- war times, very unstable, and yet he bought this field to show the people that God's promise would be that once their exile was done and once they come back from Babylon, they once again would be able to build homes and plant vineyards and plant crops and live there in peace once again. And so that, this was actually about 160 years prior to Malachi. And all the things that Malachi or that Jeremiah prophesied came true. So the emperor Cyrus, uh, he let the people of Judah go back to Jerusalem and to begin to build the walls of Jerusalem once again and to build the temple. And so all of these things had come true, but it was 90 years since they had come back from that exile. So if you just think, how many things change in 90 years of history? How many things have changed in your family's history in 90 years, right? Uh, it seems from this far distance that that's like yesterday, right? They should, they should remember the mighty acts of God and they should be with Him. But 90 years had passed, several generations had passed, and they were once again demoralized and disheartened and falling into sin. And so God raised up Malachi um, to preach to them. So this is kind of what had happened. Uh, as they had come back, They started to to build once again their their place of worship. They began to build the temple once again that the Babylonians had destroyed. When they got the foundation prepared for the temple, it says in Ezra chapter 3 that the oldest Levites and the elders, the people who had seen the first temple of Solomon, they wept. And they wept because they knew that the people would never get to see the grandeur of Solomon's temple. It would be like a shadow of the glory days. And so they're nostalgic for the old days and they're demoralized because of this. Uh, And beyond that, you know, they're not going to be the the superpower that they were when David uh, brought brought security to the land uh, with his warfare. And Solomon uh, building wealth and strength in the kingdom. Now they're just like a vassal state, right? They have to pay super high taxes to Babylon. If they want to do anything significant, they got to go ask permission from the Babylonians, so they're, they're kind of just like, man, this is, this is not great. It's, we're not impressed, right? This is not a great time. It's not the golden era. 
And so even though God had restored them and kept his promises, it seemed that many, to many of them that God was really kind of indifferent to them. And so they started to think this way. If anything good is going to happen among us, it's not God that's going to do it. It's us. It's our strength. It's our might because God is far away. And he's not going to rescue us. He's not going to change anything. And so they stopped believing in the one who was to come. They stopped trusting his promises and they were demoralized. They said, I'm going to go my own way. And so they complain about God. Uh, and Malachi records two complaints. So if you, if you have the Bible open, look at Malachi 2.17. It's just before chapter 3. And this is God telling them what they've said. You know, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him by saying this? Everyone who does evil, in, uh, does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? And so the people are tired of seeing the wicked prosper. They're tired of being under the thumb of Babylon. Of Babylon. And so they're saying, where is God? Right? Where is the God of justice? Uh, where is the one who would correct the evildoers among us and bring them down? Where is the one who rewards the righteous? And they don't see him, and so they're complaining to him. If you uh, move your eyes down to chapter 3, verse 14, we have another complaint. And where God says, uh, you have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So do you see what's going on? They're saying, God doesn't do anything. right? He doesn't do anything good or bad. He's far away. Uh, so what's the point of coming before him in, in mourning? What's the point of keeping his commands? What's the point of repenting all the time? And hearing his word, uh, I think we're just going to go our own way. And so this is the heart. And so what I want you to be curious about is why this is written down for the church today. Why does God want you to know this? Because as we observe these people's behaviors, I think we can understand our own sinful condition. We can understand our own sinful hearts and understand what might lead us to sin. Uh, Sin always comes from a heart issue, and it always comes from a worship issue. So these people started saying false things about God, and so their behavior followed. And it's interesting that we, too, might have this kind of uh, problem among us that we might say, I don't think God's going to do anything. Uh, where is this God who's supposed to be righteous? And that would lead us away from Him, too, and into our own sin. And this was the case among the people of Israel, when they started doubting their God, stopped worshiping him, it caused a spiritual and a moral crisis among the people. And so this is what Malachi is about. First of all, they began to bring defective and inferior offerings to the Lord. So the Lord commanded that they would bring a, a spotless lamb, right? An unblemished lamb for sacrifice so that he could dwell with them and their sins could be removed. But they would often bring crippled lambs, right? the worst of the lot, or they would bring not the first fruits of their crops, right, the best of the best, but they would bring the old rotten stuff from the fields, and they would offer that to God. So they began to disrespect God 
with their terrible offerings, uh, with their terrible sacrifices. They weren't thinking he was a mighty king. They were thinking he was just a pushover. He was a joke. And they treated him that way. Uh, not only that, but they stopped supporting the temple with their tithes, right? So the, the Old Testament people were uh, given the charge to support the temple, to support the Levites and the priests uh, with a tenth of their income. And this is how the priests were to be uh, paid. That's how they got their food. Um, and that's how the temple operated. And they stopped doing that. And so the priests were living in poverty. And because of that, the priests began to become corrupt. Right? Because if you're starving, uh, you're much more willing to take a bribe. So this is, by the way, a really good reason to pay your pastors well. Right? <laughs> Because you don't want those guys starving, then they're going to be, you know, they're going to be pay for play or something. You don't want that. But that's what was happening. And so the, the, the priest, God complains about the priest in chapter 2. He says, you're supposed to lead people away from wickedness and to righteousness. You're supposed to help them to repent, but your words are confusing them more. And your words are leading them to destruction. So the priesthood is corrupt. Uh, and beyond this, this spills out into the family life too, right? The, God complains about his people. He points out that uh, even though they had promised to be faithful to him and they're promised to be a light to the nations in the way they operate in their families, that many of them were divorcing the wives of their youth, he says. He says, you're, the vows that you took, you're just throwing all of that away and you're covering your garments with violence, harming your family, you're harming your children. And the people, instead of uh, you know, following through with what they had said, they're, they're breaking their vows and they're becoming disgraceful and, and their families are harmed. Not only that, but they're building their own houses uh, and letting the house of God fall into neglect. And so every weekend they're at Menards, right? And they're getting their house nice and beautiful. And remember, God had promised you will, I will bring you back to this land and you will build houses here and worship me in peace. And they forgot that all of those gifts were from God. And they decided to focus on their own homes, their own lands, and neglect the one who brought them out. Uh, so all of these things. Beyond that, they began once again to oppress the hired hands, to oppress the foreigners among them. Even though just 90 years before, they were the foreigners. And so God calls them to task on this, and he points out the symptom that is in their heart. He says, you're demoralized, you've stopped believing, and because of that, you've fallen into all of these sin traps. And so we may be tempted to think this way too. Um, when God doesn't act the way we think he should, um, when we've gone through tragedy uh, and great pain, uh, when we feel like God is distant from us or his promises are never going to come to pass, we can be tempted to become demoralized too. And we can say the same thing. Where is this God of justice? And what's the point of walking before him in righteousness? He doesn't do anything and he lets the wicked escape. And it can demoralize our hearts. You know, we can say, like the people of old, why should I bother to support the work of the church? You know, someone else is going to do it. Probably the college kids, right? They're going to support the work of the church. I'm sure if I need a tax write-off, I'll really consider generosity. 
but I'm sure God will be good with whatever leftovers I bring into his house. It's all good. And if God wants future generations to know him, I'm sure he'll figure out a way to make it happen. He'll find some way besides robbing my Christmas account. Bah humbug. Or why should I care for the poor around me, the neglected, right? If I give some of my resources to care for the poor, who's going to care for me? I can't trust God to make sure that I'm fed, and so I, I can't use those resources. I have to look out for me, right? God can't be trusted with that. Or in my marriage, why should I strive so hard? Why should I build my marriage in strength? Why can't I just walk away from it when it's difficult, right? Why can't I just break the vows that I made when God joined me to a spouse as one flesh. I mean, it's not a his business anyway, right? And if God wanted us to stay together, then he would do something, wouldn't he? Or why should I bother raising my kids in the faith? I mean, kids are going to end up one way or the other no matter what I say or do, and it doesn't really matter if they're Christians when they're adults anyway. There's no effect, you see? There's no ultimate goal. As long as they're kind of good people, I'm okay with that. So why should I go through all the trouble? Why should I do all those things? What I really need to teach my kids is how to excel compared to their peers. Right? I need to teach them to fend for themselves. Why should I bother to walk with the Lord? There's no difference if I do or not. Right? God lets the wicked go anyway. And he's kind of a pushover. He's kind of a distant, inactive father. So when we doubt God's action, we become demoralized too, don't we? And when we doubt that he's going to do anything good or bad in our lives, when we see him like a distant, neglectful father, it incites our hearts to rebellion. So this is really interesting to me that the thing that leads us to rebellion is doubt in the goodness and the promises of God. The problem is this, it's a lie. It was a lie then and it's a lie now. It wasn't true for the people of Malachi's time and it isn't true for you. Uh, Even when God seems distant in our lives, he's right next to us. St. Paul says he's closer than a brother to us. That he's as close as your next breath. And just because you close your eyes to him, doesn't mean that he's not right next to you. Or even when he seems inactive, his wisdom is preparing something glorious. And this is what St. Peter tells us, that God is not slow in keeping his promises to you. But he's being patient with the world so that more may come to faith. Like a patient father, he is tirelessly working for our good. And the reason is because he loves us dearly. And that's why he's there. And that's why he cares, and that's why he will keep his promises. But when we accuse him of these things in our hearts, and we think he's not going to do anything, he's never coming back, he's not going to change circumstances, when we accuse these things uh, in our heart to God, we blaspheme him. We break the second commandment. We use his name in vain um, because we're not giving him the credit that is due his name. Who is this God? This is the God that we teach others who is an ever-present help in trouble. He never leaves us. He never forsakes forsakes us. Uh, This is the God who has revealed himself as love, 
revealed himself as a patient father, willing to welcome home the worst sinner. This is the God who says, I'm like a shepherd who goes after the one sheep who couldn't care less, and I bring him home on my back. This is the God who is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. He's the one who never abandons us even though we turn away from him. He never turns away from us. This is the world's greatest love, and this is the world's only hope. And this is how we should speak of our God. This is what is due his name as he labors for our good. So I want you to listen to God's response to his people's uh, heart complaint, to his accusation. So look with me in chapter 3, verse 6. This is what he says. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. I think this is one of the original come-to-Jesus moments in the Bible. You know, come-to-Jesus moment is like, hey, it's actually you. (laughs) Um. Jesus hasn't changed, right? God hasn't changed. What has changed is you. This is what God tells them. He says, I haven't changed. I'm right here. My promises are still good. What has changed between us is your heart. What has changed between us is your mind, your behaviors. I don't change. And thanks be to God, right? Can you imagine? What if God changed every generation. What if the God that they worshipped in 1940 was a totally different God than they worshipped in 1970? And a totally different God that we worship today? Would that be a good thing or a bad thing? A lot of people think that God is changing, He's evolving, He's progressing, just like the rest of the world. But that would be terrifying. God doesn't change, and that's a good thing for us who do. God is always the same. He's always on point. He's always on time. He's always coming to do the right thing, and that means we can count on him at all circumstances, and in all generations, he's the same God. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, he's the same, and that means his mercy is the same for us today. We take heart when we see these words from the Lord, when we see what happened, because we know that everything that Malachi prophesied, did it come true? Yes. He prophesied that God would send uh, before him a prophet, someone to prepare the way. And we know that guy. We know John the Baptist came on the scene. He's a historical figure. We know he was a fiery preacher. You heard some of it this morning in the reading. He came to prepare the way for the Lord. And we know that the Lord himself came to his people. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This prophecy was fulfilled. We have the privilege of seeing both the prophecy and the fulfillment. Jesus came like a fire purifying the people. And he purified them with his words, right? As he took to task the religious leaders, as he called out their corruption, he acted like their judge and jury and executioner. And so they executed him. 
they put him on the cross and they pierced him. And they put a, sword, uh, a spear in his side and he bled and he died. But God raised him from the dead. And we know that he lives today and stands at God's right hand and will come again. His first coming is accomplished where he paid for the sins of the world, where his blood flowed like a fountain of mercy for all who doubt. And his second coming, he'll come in glory. Like John the Baptist said in our gospel reading, his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will come to separate the wicked from the righteous, the wheat from the chaff. He'll take the wheat and store it in his barn. He'll take the chaff and burn it with unquenchable fire. And the prophet Malachi tells us of this too. He says, Behold, there is a day coming where we will once again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And so as we see these things played out in the grand stage of history, we can take courage for today. Uh, The Lord has come. His first advent has come. The Lord is coming. Uh, His second advent is coming. And the Lord has come to us today. His third advent is today. You see, Jesus has not left you alone. He has not left you to pick up yourself, to be strong in yourself. Instead, Jesus himself comes to us in the bread and in the wine, in his word. He approaches you today in mercy to strengthen you. As we are filled with doubts, as we are filled with discouragement, as we are tempted to despair, Jesus shows up. He says, fear not. I am with you. I am your God. Come all of you who are disheartened, who are discouraged, who are demoralized. Come and be washed in my blood again. Be washed in my forgiveness. Be sanctified by my fire that I pour into your heart. And stand tall in my promises, which are true and will never fail. The Lord comes to us to let us know that his promises, his pledges are good. That we will never be put to shame if we trust them. And so let's put our hearts in him and let's stand. Let's no longer be discouraged, but take courage in the mighty working of God. And let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we, we see your great deeds in history. We see your great deeds in this world. Uh, we confess to you this day that, that we, like the people of Israel, um, often fall astray, that our hearts are often tempted to doubt, that we become demoralized, and that we no longer desire to do what is right or to walk before you in righteousness. We pray, Lord, that as we gather around your table, as we hear your words, that you would sanctify us like a purifying fire, cause us uh, to be purified in our faith so that we can hold fast to you and help us, Lord, to stand up together as your people. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.